0: The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters.
1: If you look at philosophical belief in the same way that you would look at race or religion or sex, if you look at this discussion through that prism, it may become slightly less difficult to navigate. Fundamentally, you don't need to have a a debate or pick a side and don't, if you can possibly avoid it, where it comes up between staff, listen to what's being said. Is there an act of harassment or an act of unlawful behaviour by one member of staff against another? And if there is, it's a disciplinary issue.
0: Hello, listeners. Great to have your company again. It's Yasmin here and I've got a great guest for you next. So we're interviewing Peter Daly and he's from Doyle Clayton. With Peter, we talked a little bit about his career And also, he's a leading employment lawyer in respect of philosophical beliefs. So we're going to get into that, what are they? And he'll explain some of his leading cases around those issues. Now, we appreciate that these issues that we talk about in this podcast episode are pretty contentious. And therefore, we want to represent all perspectives and views on this subject. And we refer listeners to two episodes episode 110, featuring Ellie Krug, and also episode 79, where I interviewed Freddie McConnell. So please sit back, enjoy the episode, and we hope we find this really thought-provoking. The Hearing. Peter Daly, thank you so much for joining us as a guest on The Hearing Podcast. It's great to have your company. How are you today?
1: Very well. Pleasure to be here.
0: Fantastic. And you're from Doyle Clayton, uh, solicitors. So, What I'd like to find out, first of all, Peter, is some of you, some people may know of you because you've dealt with some very um, prominent cases recently, and we're going to get into those later. But what has your career journey been to date before you got to Doyle Clayton?
1: Well, I I came to law as a second career. I graduated in 2000 and I spent about three years working, three or four years working in politics as a parliamentary researcher and then a, a, a lobbyist, effectively. Um, Decided that I didn't like that career and I wanted to do something else. Didn't know what I wanted to do. Went off to Japan to teach English for a year. Uh, And then while I was there, decided to to become a solicitor. Um, I trained and qualified into a firm which no longer exists called MLS Chase, which had a a specialism uh, with India. So UK companies going to India and Indian companies coming to the UK. Um, it was a very small firm and part of what i did there was a bit of everything really so i didn't have um, seats as a as a trainee like like many solicitors do i kind of you know I'm on a, any given day i might be doing a, a piece of shipping litigation and a wills dispute and some employment law and something else and something else and immigration and all sorts of stuff so it, it was a great training in order to um, show the benefits of having a a very broad practice area and not being too kind of um, trammelled into a particular legal niche. Um, So I was there for, I was at MLS Chase for about five or six years and then went off and joined Bindman's, which is a a fantastic, um, it's an institution in in many ways, a a kind of, um, a campaigning um, law firm with some of the best lawyers in the country. Um, I'm still, very friendly with many of them. Uh, I was there for about eight years. Um, I then moved over to Slater and Gordon in 2019 um, as principal lawyer, which is essentially what they call their partners. Um, And from there moved over to Doyle Clayton. Um, So what I do now is what I've done since since I was at Byneman's really, which is um, discrimination law, mainly 80, 90 percent of that is employment law, because that's where most um, discrimination litigation takes place. And of that, 70, 80, 90 percent of that is claimant work rather than respondent work, um, which is always what I've enjoyed doing the most.
0: Mm, That's helpful. Thank you. And you came to my attention because I I think I saw you in the Gazette, firstly, um, because you've been the solicitor for two of the most prominent philosophical uh, belief cases of recent years and we're going to get into it that a little bit later but ethical veganism and I'd, I'd love for you to break down what that is later and also gender critical um, and and what I'd love for this podcast to do this topic um, about gender identity um, and gender critical beliefs is quite confusing for a lot of people, lay people, lawyers as well um, and I'd love for it, this podcast to be very accessible um, so that people understand the language as well. So we're, we're going to clarify the terms for anybody listening so that you can really understand um, what we're talking about. But firstly, I, what I'd love to do, Peter, is to for you to tell us about the Granger case, because that was the case um, that actually defined, you know, what is a philosophical belief and when it is protected by the Equality Act. So would you like to tell us a bit about the Granger case? And I think there are five criteria um, that you have to establish for it to be a protected belief under the Equality Act?
1: Yeah, so I mean the Equality Act has a number of separate protected characteristics, age, race, sex, disability, so on and so forth, and one of them is a Section 10, uh, Religion and Belief. So that then breaks down into two things, religion and philosophical belief. Um, religion's in some ways perhaps a little bit easier to get our heads around because we're familiar with, you know, the the, the big five or six religions, Um, but with philosophical belief, it's this concept that, you know, you can have a philosophical underpinning to your life, which falls outside of Christianity or Judaism or Islam or whatever it may be. Um, And the courts have kind of uh, grappled with this idea over the past sort of 15, 20 years, as to you know, what kind of a belief uh, reaches that standard, which is similar to religion in that it, it, it is worthy of, of protection um, as a protected characteristic. And Granger PLC and others um, and Nicholson was the case where the UK courts really kind of drilled down on what the, what the criteria were for a, a protected philosophical belief. The case was about a chap who had a belief in uh, man-made climate change, and he was dismissed from work. And so the courts had to decide whether or not that guy's belief, the claimant, the claimant's belief in that case, um, was sufficiently well-grounded as to be worthy of protection. And it came up with, as you've said, a five-stage test. Um, and the, 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 the stages are that belief has to be genuinely held, it has to be a belief rather than an opinion or a view uh, based on kind of currently available information. Um, It has to be something which is relevant to a a, a weighty and substantial part of human life and existence. Um, It has to have a a degree of cogency, seriousness, uh, importance, so it has to be something that's very substantial. And then the fifth test is that it has to be worthy of respect in a democratic society and not something which kind of tramples over the rights of other people. Um, So if a belief hits those five points, uh, it will pass the Granger criteria, it will be a protected philosophical belief. Um, It then has to, you, you then have to get into all sorts of kind of considerations about well okay fine you've got the belief or well, what did that lead you to do and what did that lead the respondent to to, to do against you which you claim is discrimination so in a sense you kind of got to look at the belief um, on its own terms in abstract from the individual and then you've got to consider you know how that belief interplays between a claimant and a respondent or a claimant and a defendant in in litigation whether whether or not that amounted to discrimination it's an unusual um, protected characteristic because it's it's a bit more subjective as to the claimant uh than other protected characteristics are so for example you know in race uh you know race includes color the color of somebody's skin is much much more objectively clear whether or not somebody has that protected characteristic in philosophical belief you've really got to drill down into what somebody thinks and what their opinions and viewpoints and beliefs are. And they're not something that you can tell by looking at somebody as they walk down the street. Um, There is a similarity there with disability, because again, in in disability discrimination, with only one or two exceptions, you've got to look at what a person's condition is and how it impacts their day-to-day existence, which requires a bit of an interrogation by the court. and you know that that's that's similar to philosophical belief. Like you've really got to get people to explain what they think and believe, and why they think and believe it, before you can understand whether or not that belief is protected.
0: Mm. And in Mr. Granger's case, what what did he feel that his employers were discriminating against him?
1: He he lost his job. I mean, it's, it's that straightforward. It wasn't my case, but I don't think they even disputed that that, that was the reason why he'd lost his job. Yeah. I said earlier that most discrimination litigation takes place in, in, in the employment sphere, um, and that's because, you know, in terms of the, the most serious thing that can happen to somebody, um, if it's not a criminal act, if it's not an act of physical violence or, or you know, abuse in the street... Then losing your job and your livelihood is probably the most serious thing that can happen to you. And if that happens because mm. of characteristic, then you know you you need some avenue in law. And that's what happened to Mr. Granger. He, um, I beg your pardon. That's what happened to Mr. Nicholson. Granger was the was the employer.
0: Oh, Granger was the employer. Yeah, and and so that leads me nicely to. Uh, the four-starter case, and uh, Geordie, and I hope i pronounced this correctly, his surname, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, Casamitiana. Is that correct?
1: It is, yeah. It, Geordie's a, a Catalan, so the the, uh, the the J is pronounced, so it's Casamitjana.
0: Right, OK, got it, thank you. Um, and in those two cases, they both lost their job as well. So uh, in Geordie's case, um, he it, it was tested whether he was an ethical vegan and mm. um do you want to explain first what an ethical vegan is because i'm sure most people don't know what that is
1: well i think i think people are like very much on the word vegan and think this is a dietary issue you know i don't eat mm. an, uh, animal products and of course that's a big part of it but ethical veganism is underpinned by quite a well-developed set of kind of philosophical writings and and thinking um, it's very, very, very coherent, actually. It was fascinating stuff. It's one of, as an aside, it's one of the really good, interesting things about doing philosophical belief work is that you have to pick up and read things that you wouldn't otherwise pick up and read. And it really does make you think. Um, but in, in a nutshell, it, it, veganism is a dietary thing. Uh, ethical veganism is very much a set of beliefs about how humans interact with the world and you can come to it through different pathways so you might be an ethical vegan for the animals and you might have a keen interest in animal rights, you might be um, an ethical vegan for the environment because there's a huge uh, environmental benefit to to, uh, um, a a plant-based lifestyle um, and of course, the dietary issue is, is, is front and center in it. But you know, in Geordie's case, for example, he thought about his interaction with with the with the natural world um, and with animals on a kind of mi- almost on a minute by minute basis. I mean, mm. it got lots of coverage that case. But one facet of it that really did kind of stand out in in a lot of the, the press coverage was the fact that in the spring and the summer. Uh, Geordie would avoid taking a bus because it would be more likely that the bus would hit insects that were flying down the street and kill them than if he walked or if he took the tube because on the tube there's no insects. Um, And so, you know, it's that degree of thought and, um, you know, self-reflection which sets ethical veganism apart from pure dietary veganism. Interestingly, there was a case... Uh, In the same court in in Norwich Employment Tribunal about three or four months before our case in front of the same judge um, on the question of whether or not vegetarianism was a philosophical belief. And the judge in that case was was able to say, well, look, you know, vegetarianism doesn't have the same degree of, of going back to Granger. Uh, cogency seriousness cohesion and importance because in vegetarianism really what you're talking about is what you're going to have for lunch or dinner and while that is important in ethical veganism there's a hell of a lot more to it and there's a lot more thought and and, and yeah. philosophy behind it so um and in fact in, in in geordie's case the 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 kind of the crucible the nexus of the dispute between him and his employer was about a pension policy and it was about where his pension fund was being invested Um, and that was into companies that um, tested on animals and and, and had kind of extremely uh, non-ethical vegan um, aims and goals. And his big concern was, look, I'm an ethical vegan. I don't want my money being invested in these things because it will contribute to harm to animals. It was not a dietary issue at all. Um, So, yeah, we had, as happened in, in Forstatter and happened in many philosophical belief cases, you almost have this two-stage test where uh, you, you initially have a hearing which considers the the belief in principle as held by the claimant and does this philosophical idea pass the Granger test? And if you overcome that hurdle, you then go to a stage two, which is, well, what happened between this claimant and this respondent? Um, was it connected to the philosophical belief and was it discriminatory? Um so, yeah, we in January 2019, I think it was, we had the first stage and, and, and determined that the belief was protected. And in the event that that, that, that hearing um, was a little bit of a foregone conclusion because the respondent agreed that the belief was protected. Initially, they hadn't. But by the time we got to trial or by the time we got to that hearing, they did agree. Um, so it was a a bit of a procession um and in fact we got an extemporary judgment there and then which is extremely unusual in the employment tribunal and then we went back about four or five months later and, and and had the the full merits hearing where we considered whether or not he had been discriminated against and thankfully midway through that trial the respondent conceded and um we we um we got a a, a judgment by consent that that Geordie had been unlawfully treated and and had been discriminated against.
0: Because they were initially claiming, as I understand it, that he was dismissed not because of his belief, but because um, by telling his colleagues about this pension fund, it was gross misconduct. So congratulations. It's really quite quite a, a really interesting judgment, actually. And what I'd love to know, Peter, is ethical veganism, so that's a, a philosophical belief protected under the Equality Act. But, you know, employers listening to this, people in HR, they probably want to know what are the real practical consequences of this case? They've got ethical vegans now, perhaps, in their in their workplace. What are the consequences of that?
1: Well, I think veganism and ethical veganism are, are extremely common now. And I think, we, I mean, I've certainly got... I'm not an ethical vegan myself. Um, I did give it a really good go after the case, but yeah, I just found it very.
0: <laughs> that's very honest of you.
1: Well, uh, I, I I think that's always the best policy. Um, but I, you know, we've all got, I think, friends or family or people that we know, colleagues who are vegan or ethical vegan. It is a question of thinking. Well, you know, as an employer, how does this interact? Do we have, you know, shared food or shared. Uh, uniform or equipment or anything which, you know, we could be inadvertently, pensions being a great example, um, we could be inadvertently um, forcing ethical vegans to do something which is completely at, at odds with their their deep-seated and, and protected beliefs. Um, it, it's also, with, with ethical veganism, one of the things that really came out in the case was that it's, it's very often, you know, beneficial for a company to have uh, vegan alternatives—they're often better in many ways. You know, the, uh, the, the the pension that Geordie had, I think, in his case, was actually better performing. The ethical pension was better performing than the one they had before, and it's remarkable how often that happens. Um, but I think, in terms of you know, to zoom out slightly, and we might come back to this when we talk about forced data. Um, with philosophical belief discrimination, there are a number of. Um, general approaches which go beyond the mere dietary, you know vegan approach uh, and think about well how do we how do we interact with our staff and how do we treat our staff and how do we deal with um, disputes and disagreements between philosophical beliefs when they arise in the workplace? And that's a much bigger question.
0: So let's get into that. Now, there's a national discussion about sex and gender, um, sometimes it's termed the, tr- the transgender debate, um, and, and you were—I guess—you're part of that discussion because you were the solicitor who uh, dealt with the landmark decision of Four Starter. So, before we get into Four Starter, could you just define, clarify the language around this? When someone has a gender critical belief, what does that actually mean?
1: Well, I think the language is, is the absolute key to this, and it. It, it, that's really where um an awful lot of the 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 debate is taking place and so there are certain terms where there is no perfectly uncontroversial definition and some of those terms are absolutely central um so i'm going to give the 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 the, the, the definitions and the wording that have been successful in the employment appeal tribunal and in in employment tribunal cases um, with the caveat that these are not universally accepted, even if they are accepted by the courts. Um, And I mean, absolutely no offence to anybody by doing that, but there has to be some kind of linguistic um, definitions before you have any discussion around this issue at all. Um, So at, at its heart, this is sometimes called the sex v gender debate. Um, And those two terms, sex and gender, are really where the whole thing kind of takes place. So a gender critical feminist or somebody with gender critical beliefs would say that um, sex is uh, biological, immutable. It's observable. Um, A person cannot change their sex. Um, We are male or we are female. Every human being who has ever existed on this earth was born from a female um, was born from a woman. Um, in contrast, uh, gender is a much more intangible concept, and it's a question of identity and what we, um, how we view ourselves. Um, it is not um, objectively observable um, because it's, uh, um, as I say, it, it's 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 a, a psychological or, or uh, an identity concept. Um, one example that's sometimes given is that if um, an archaeologist finds the shin bone of a Stone Age person in a peat bog uh, and it's been sitting there for 3,000 years, it's possible for scientists to look at that shin bone and to identify the sex of the person that held it by kind of scientific evaluation. But it is not possible with a 3,000 year old shin bone. To determine what a person's what that person's gender identity was, because that's something that they need to express or to tell you. Um, so you have these 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 different concepts of, of sex and gender, and um, as I say, gender critical beliefs would hold that sex is not not just real, immutable, um, um, binary, male female, but also that it is very important. In certain circumstances, and that it should be um, taken as the as, as more important than gender. And those scenarios involve places where uh, women need single-sex spaces, including changing rooms, prisons, and so on and so forth. And in sport, um, where um, the evidence suggests that well, it doesn't just suggest the evidence shows that there's there's a, a huge male advantage, which comes from male puberty. Another set of words which is contentious, but but sometimes helps kind of cut through um, the, the the confusion, is um, male female on the one hand versus man woman on the other. So one of the principles of gender identity beliefs, which are the oppositional beliefs, the gender critical, is that trans women are women. Um, you can then sometimes get into uh, a definitional confusion about what is a woman, which was a kind of, you know for about six weeks earlier this year, every politician that was interviewed by a journalist would be asked, what is a woman? Um, it, gender-critical feminists would say a woman is an adult human female. Gender, people who ascribe to gender identity beliefs would say that uh, a woman includes a trans woman, And you then get into a slightly more complicated question about okay well you know what is a working definition of woman that doesn't either include the word woman itself so it's circular or you know some variation on a woman is somebody who identifies as a woman which doesn't tell us anything about um, uh, what the word means or alternatively you then get into definitions which are about how um, a, a woman behaves or presents, so that which can then rely upon um, sexist stereotypes. Mm. I.e., you know, a woman who is somebody who dresses in female clothing, or a woman is somebody who wears heels and makeup. Um, uh, so, it, it, one of the things that, in order to try and cut through some of the definitional um, problems, uh, when you're presenting cases of this nature to um, uh, courts and tribunals is to try and stick to the language of male female which is biological language um, rather than man woman which is a bit more contested um, yes. interestingly the equality act makes it very clear that when it's talking about sex and when it's talking about men and women it is talking about male female which is the, the you know essentially supports gender-critical beliefs. Um, and this was a point that call it, the Employment Appeal Tribunal in Forstater uh, relied upon to say that the belief was was, was protected.
0: Mm. Now, that's that's really helpful, Peter. I think that breaks it down. It's, it's a long answer, isn't it? Because we then get on to other things. And um, yeah, but that's brilliant. So what our, I want our listeners to understand is why did Forstater lose her job then?
1: So Maya Forstater is a is a researcher in in tax, um, and she has a, a particular interest in that. Um, and she worked in kind of uh, think tanks and, and um, talking about policy and international tax policy. And she found herself. I can't actually remember what the issue was. it was Some issue around international tax policy. She found herself in a debate on Twitter with two people from um, a think tank called um, the Centre for Global Development who published a paper and Maya disagreed with it and she she argued with them online in, in an extremely respectful way, you know, in the way that kind of um, thinkers and academics often do. Um, and that led Centre for Global Development to say... We'll come and work for us then. So she was a, a contractor there for a while um, and she was um, quite closely bound into the organization um, and was going out and you know getting funding for, for proposed work and, and so on and so forth not centrally around um, debates around sex and gender but part of the culture at CGD, was that they encouraged debates around wider um, subjects, not just their their staff's core interests. Um, And Maya uh, found herself reading around the issues around sex and gender, because around 2017, 2018, the government was proposing to reform the Gender Recognition Act which is the act of parliament that enables uh, trans people to get a gender recognition certificate and get legal recognition for their gender um, as it changes through transition. Um, and there was an awful lot of debate going on online about this and, 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 and Maya was reading up on it and, and was finding that she disagreed with the proposals and was expressing her views on that. And to cut a long, quite a long story short, um, she tweeted about it in, in, in various respects um, and uh, on one occasion she brought some campaign literature into the office and this led to a number of colleagues um, complaining about her um, and saying that they found her views to be offensive and she was then not uh, she then her, her, her contract was not renewed so she lost her employment um, that's a bit of a Oversimplification. There was there was quite a lot more to it than that. She had slightly atypical employment. She wasn't a direct employee. Um, but in a nutshell, that's what happened. Um, and the reason given was that she she'd been um, offensive in her views, and there was a kind of um, received wisdom within CGD that she had been transphobic. Um, so she brought a claim to say that. Um, I have not been offensive, I am not transphobic, Um, I simply hold gender critical beliefs, they are protected under the Equality Act, and your decision to dismiss me as a result of those was therefore unlawful. As with Geordie and the Ethical Vegan case, it then split into sort of a game of two halves if you like. Uh, The first half was whether or not the belief was protected, and the second half was if it was protected, uh, was she treated unlawfully? And we had a hearing in November 2019 um, in the Employment Tribunal on the question of the belief, and we lost. And um, the tribunal found that of the five Granger tests, uh, the fifth, that the belief was not worthy of respect in a democratic society, was not satisfied by gender critical beliefs, and therefore the belief was not protected, and therefore the case, the claim failed. We appealed to the Employment Appeal Tribunal. In the interim, we got COVID, so there was a bit of a delay in that. And then we got in front of the Employment Appeal Tribunal in April 2021, so there was nearly an 18-month wait. And then we got judgment in June 2021. um, And that found that, actually, the belief comfortably satisfied the fifth of the Granger tests. Uh, One of the, you know, the, the, the core kind of finding on that was quite an interesting kind of discussion around what it means to be worthy of respect in a democratic society um, and about the kind of the threshold that a belief has to pass in order to be worthy of respect and the judgment relies very heavily on the European Convention on Human Rights and Article 17 which talks about the protection of beliefs that um, don't um, conflict with the fundamental rights of others And the the judgment finds that Article 17 sets an extremely low threshold to satisfy that test. So essentially, it's got to be kind of Nazism and totalitarianism. It can't just be something which people find upsetting or offensive, which is a fundamentally subjective and in the eye of the beholder way of looking at the world. Um, And it was, you know, very important to notice that the, the, the judgment well, two things that were very important about Maya's case. She wasn't simply arguing that gender-critical beliefs are protected. She was also arguing that the opposite beliefs, the gender identity beliefs, which she does not hold, she was also arguing that they too are protected. So essentially what the case was doing was trying to put both sides of the debate in a place where, you know, people are protected from... from, um, Holding from from suffering detriments or unfavourable treatment because they hold the beliefs. Mm. Um, And the other thing that was um, very kind of prominent in in the EAT judgment um, was that just because her belief was protected it did not give her the right to go around or did not give anybody with gender critical beliefs the right to go around uh, harassing trans people um, which In the event nobody, well, some people did say that that had happened, but it hadn't. Um, There were no trans staff at CGD. There was nobody kind of singled out for harassment or abuse. Um, So uh, having won that and established that the belief was protected, we then went back to the tribunal to answer the question of whether or not Maya had been discriminated against because of her protected beliefs. And we had a trial on that in March this year. And then we got a judgment on that just more than a year after we'd had the EAT um, decision. She was successful on most counts. She wasn't successful on all. Uh, Part of the reason for that was she pleaded some of her cases two ways. So, you know, this particular event was either direct discrimination or it was harassment or it was indirect discrimination. And where it succeeded on one, it then had to fail on the others.
0: The hearing. On the outside, you're a lawyer, calm and cool, but inside, there's a passion to perform, a drive to be absolutely on your game. You prepare hour after hour, day after day in the pursuit of excellence, relying on superior resources, serious preparation, and total confidence. That's the advantage we give you. Be your best with Thomson Reuters Practical Law. In your LinkedIn article, which I read with great interest, one of the suggestions you said to deal with this on a practical level, yeah. the consequences of 4Starter, is we actually have to not just provide training which subscribes to the gender identity beliefs, which is most of the training. I've, in fact, I've never seen any training dealing with gender critical beliefs or even acknowledging them for, for, yeah. to do that in itself would be seen as almost transphobic.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, in many employers, it would. And, and, you know, such is the state of equality, diversity and inclusion and, and you know, even HR mm. um, at the moment. The, you know, the that that judgment still hasn't properly landed in those sectors. They, they haven't really properly understood it in, in many no. of them. Um, but I think, you know, g- going back to your question, you know, do, do we have training in this belief and in that belief? I think what... To, to throw that question back to you slightly, what do you mean by training in the belief? I mean, it do, there doesn't mm. have to be a kind of acceptance or an agreement with either gender critical or gender identity, or to use any other kind of, um, you know, philosophical belief. There doesn't have to be training in, um, you know, the, the, the absolute finer points of ethical veganism or Scottish independence or you know any of the philosophical beliefs that, that have, have come through the courts. Um, but I think a, a recognition. On, on a fundamental level that gender critical beliefs are held and are protected is necessary. It doesn't have to go into hugely greater detail than that, frankly. Yeah. And, and conversely, you know, training that there are people that, that believe in gender identity. I, I think at, at the start of the, the, the podcast, um, you, you you use the the terminology, which is is, is fairly universal and make no criticism of you, but you use the phrase, the transgender issue. And I think that aspect of the framing of it, which is pretty universal, I think is a slightly misleading way of looking at it because there's a, there's a temptation to see this issue and this conflict because it is a conflict as being a conflict between feminists and trans people and that's not the case this isn't actually a conflict between two sets of people it's a conflict between two sets of beliefs Mm -hmm. and while it might be that gender critical feminists are primarily women or primarily you know female and while it might be that um, gender identity beliefs are held by most trans people in fact it's not about women versus trans people or feminists versus trans people. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, apart from anything else, that we don't have numbers, but there are very few people um, with the protective characteristic of gender reassignment who, who you know, I, I use that as a shorthand for being trans. Many people who hold gender identity beliefs, and I suspect probably the majority, are not trans. No.
0: Uh,
1: and And you know, by holding that belief, they can take extreme offence to gender critical beliefs. And they may incorrectly think that it's discriminatory against trans people. But if we frame this whole debate as a a fight and a battle between two groups of individuals, rather than um, a disagreement on a a philosophical belief, Mm. then I think all we're doing is we're setting up uh, disputes and conflicts in the workplace Going back to what we were talking about earlier, which is the terminology and how confusing it can be, one of the areas that gender-critical people say that sex is important is in the collation of data. So mm. that when we tick a box on a form and we say, you know, what is your gender or what is your sex, what does that actually mean? And if we don't have clear and co- coherent language that that, that travels across, um, you know, di- different data points, then it's very difficult to know how many trans people there are, you know, and and even you know, and without that data, it's very difficult for um, society, for government, and for employers to try and get a handle on the whole issue and say, well, you know, how are we going to kind of make life as 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 straightforward and as easy for people that are going through gender reassignment as possible? Um, so you know, and then that then plays out into the conversation that we've just been having about is there such a thing as a trans person who's gender critical, and to what extent? It, do trans people have, uh, you know, a single point of view?
0: Yeah, I mean, the trouble is if you're in a minority group and you're interviewed or asked a question about something, you're supposed to um, represent your whole community. <laughs> you know, people are not a monolith, are they?
1: Uh, they're not a monolith, and I think that that is an incredibly astute point. I mean, I I, I saw a, a a big blow up this weekend about um, a prominent. Uh, radio presenter who had laid into Suella Bravman and, um, Priti Patel, for their immigration policies, and making the point that you know, their race, their 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 ethnicity, made those immigration policies particularly objectionable, and and then a number of commentators, many of whom were sort of liberal left wing uh, and from a, an Asian background, pushing back on this very strongly and saying, hang on a minute, we are not a monolith and you can't kind of impose a, 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 a policy perspective on us just because of the colour of our skin. And hang on a minute, doesn't that sound a little bit like racism itself? Um, and I think whenever we try and take a a particular group, a particular protected characteristic and treat them, treat that group as being, as you say, a monolith or homogenous. That's really where discrimination can can arise.
0: Mm. Absolutely. That leads me nicely to the Alison Bailey case. And and we spoke before, obviously it's going to appeal, you know, you're restricted in what you can say for obvious reasons. Um, Just tell us as much as you want about um, the Alison Bailey case.
1: Alison Bailey is a criminal law barrister. She works in a chambers called Garden Court Chambers in London. Um, She's a a lesbian and a a lesbian campaigner of of many, many years. She was involved in the foundation of LGB Alliance, which is a charity that's been set up to campaign for the rights of lesbian, gay and bisexual people from a gender critical perspective. Um, uh, She attended a a sort of a, a launch meeting in October 2018 um, and then tweeted about that meeting on the bus on the way home Um, and this caused this huge outpouring of just vitriol and abuse coming her way Um, um, and it elicited a load of complaints that were made to her chambers by members of the public. Uh, One of the complaints came from Stonewall. Her chambers then publicly made a statement that say, saying that she was under investigation um, and essentially distancing themselves from her and they put her through this 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 investigation and upheld the complaints that were made against her um, she made uh, we, we brought claim to the employment tribunal um, and we were successful on many of them and we failed on some of them. Um, one of the complaints that we failed upon was uh, a claim against Stonewall itself that it had induced, caused, or influenced the discrimination that she suffered at the hands of her chambers. Um, another complaint that we failed that we failed upon was that she had suffered a, um, a restriction in income as a result of her protected belief, um, and that's where we stand at the moment. Uh, as I say, we have appealed. And that's now with the Employment Appeal Tribunal. And I can't really go much further than that other than to say, watch this space.
0: That's absolutely fine. Completely understood. That's brilliant, Peter. We've spent a long time trying to clarify language, which I think has been really helpful. And you've been absolutely brilliant doing that. Is there anything you wanted to add before we finish off?
1: Some of these discussions and debates are really fascinating. I mean, like, as I said earlier, when I was talking about ethical veganism, one of the fun things um, about doing philosophical belief cases is that it requires you to actually get to grips and grapple with these these social concepts and ideas. And I think, you know, a lot of people who've kind of come across this discussion online or in the press have read about it and find it fascinating and so on and so forth. Um also a number of of people that read about it and find it absolutely distressing um, and and very, very worrying. But I think on a practical level, ultimately, people want to know how to navigate this issue in the workplace. And I think that requires people to really zoom out and to think about much more fundamentally about how we do equality, diversity and inclusion, how we do human resources and how we mitigate and mediate conflicts in the workplace. Because I think over the past 10, 15, 20 years, however long it may be, we've got to a point where we see um, discrimination um, and equality as a zero-sum game, as a binary 1-0 winner-loser. And I think that way of looking at discrimination is absolutely valid in many, many, many respects. You know, There is absolutely no kind of um, uh, benefit to, you know, taking another look at race discrimination and thinking, well, you know, maybe we can look at this another way. No, in race discrimination, we should not, or homophobia, or, you know, most, you know, nearly all discrimination. But when we get to philosophical belief and where we have uh, two conflicting sets of beliefs, both of which are protected equally in law, this whole approach of saying, you know, what what's the moral what's the moral code here? Well, who's the winner? Who's the loser? Who's the goody? Who's the baddie? Is absolutely doomed to fail. And that's where the issue becomes so toxic in the workplace. Saying about, you know, bringing our whole whole selves to work. um, Really, really, really need to consider the wisdom of that. Because actually, um, we don't need to bring our whole selves to work. You know, there are plenty of aspects of our of our personal lives that we don't bring to work and bringing a contentious um, and, and possibly offensive belief, whether that be gender critical or gender identity. I'm not casting, you know, favouritism between the two, bringing that into the workplace and particularly bringing that into the workplace and compelling people to pick a side um, is a recipe for absolute disaster. There is no reason why it needs to be done. There are some workplaces, I should say, where it is necessary. You know, if your workplace is involved in the treatment of gender dysphoria, then of course you're going to have to grapple with Mm. this. Mm. But if you are an art gallery, you do not. If you are a greengrocer's, it does not matter. There has to be a a kind of um, a a, a, a turning around of the tanker on EDI. Um, and a realization that not everything is a moral one zero binary, and not every discussion actually needs to you know you don't have to take a dis- uh, take, pick a side in 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 every mm-hmm. social debate, um, because if you do, you're going to end up in litigation.
0: Yeah, and isn't that shouldn't that be the definition of diversity and inclusion anyway? It shouldn't be you have to subscribe to a certain view to be included. Actually it involves us having perhaps opposing views, and that's okay. We, you know, can get along just fine. I might have a completely different political opinion to you or support a different political party. We can have a respectful conversation and vehemently disagree with each other, but still tick along quite nicely in the workplace. Yeah,
1: and we do. You know, the fundamental tenets of many religions are fundamentally opposed to one another. Religion is, you know... the. The crucible of war forever um, and yet somehow we are able to have people with different religious beliefs in the workplace and very very rarely does this result in a dispute arising and the reason for that is that employers wouldn't dream in 99.9% of situations from choosing or picking a side in a religious discussion and the reason that they don't do that is because as you say we see the benefits of diversity I mean ultimately you know diversity ha- obviously has a a moral aspect Um, and discrimination is is something to be reviled you know no question but there's also quite a hard-nosed kind of business reason why we do diversity and it's because you know diversity of thought and diversity of opinion and diversity of input make better decisions and that makes better organizations and we all benefit from that it's not just a kind of a a moral aspect it's also quite hard-nosed it's a very, very slippery slope to try and draw comparisons between different um, philosophical beliefs because it, 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 that way leads disaster. But one area where I think you can draw comparisons is if you look at philosophical belief in the same way that you would look at um, race or religion or you know sex or most of them and say, diversity means diversity. It means having representation from different groups and classes from across these protected characteristics. Um, And if you look at this discussion through that prism, then all of a sudden, it may become slightly less difficult to navigate. But I mean, fundamentally, you don't need to have a a debate or pick a side and don't, if you can possibly avoid it. And where it comes up between staff, don't pick a side, you know, listen to what's being said you know, is there an act of harassment or an act of unlawful kind of behaviour by by one member of staff against another? And if there is, it's a disciplinary issue. You don't yeah. need to pick a side in the under, the, the fundamental underlying subject. Uh, and I think there's been a real temptation over the past, let's say, five years uh, for that kind of basic truism to get lost in the midst of a rush to be seen as a moral player and... and mm. To have a kind of uh, a corporate morality but it's it is misguided
0: yeah peter you've been a really interesting guest thank you so much for clarifying some of these concepts for us
1: pleasure thank you
0: the hearing we'd love to hear any suggestions for future guests from you or any topics you're dying for us to explore and you can contact us at the hearing at tr.com The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash The Hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your
1: podcasts.